This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. The National Gallery of Victoria announced this week that it was completely changing the way it represents Australian art. That must have been a big decision by the curators. I've learnt a lot about behind the scenes at an art gallery through Anna Kate Blair's book, The Modern. It's not the NGV, it's an even bigger art gallery. Where have you set the story? It's set at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It would be very prestigious to have working at MoMA in New York on your CV. How hard is it to get a job there? Well, in practice, actually, it probably is quite hard. I think I did work at the Museum of Modern Art before I wrote this book. And I, um, I remember that they told us for our jobs, a thousand people applied for each position, which is a detail I used in the book. Uh, so, yeah, it is quite hard to get a job there. But also, I think often it comes down to matters of luck like if you just so happen to have been writing your PhD on the same artist they're planning to do a show on the next year then you can get a job there. Uh, And there's different degrees of jobs. Interns don't get paid, fellowships, well two-year contracts and curatorial assistants four years. Interns actually do get paid at MoMA. The difference between an intern and a fellow at MoMA is whether the position is internally funded or externally funded. Uh. So interns are paid and they're paid at the same rate as fellows, but their salary comes from the museum, whereas fellows, the salary comes from outside the museum. And there is a little bit about uh, having to flaunt to wealthy patronage in the books, but New York may be the centre of modernity and it's Sophia's speciality in art. Even she doesn't really know how to characterise modernity, but why is she so interested in Grace Hartigan, an artist who painted in the 1950s? I think the answer that I would give to this question and the answer that Sophia would give are quite different. I think Sophia would say she's interested in Grace Hartigan because she's interested in female abstract expressionist painters and Grace Hartigan was one of the most prominent female painters in the 50s and I think for Sophia it kind of she views it as combining her interests in gender and her interests in um, modern painting but I think in truth there's also kind of an undercurrent of interest in her own kind of absent mother in that Grace Hartigan left her child in order to move to the city and become an artist. And um, while Sophia's background is a little hazier, Mm. I like to think that perhaps there's some element of projection or preoccupation with the idea of leaving a family in favour of art that perhaps without her acknowledging it does play Mm. a role in her interest there. That fits in. Grace is quoted as saying, in another year I shall be 30, time to begin to fulfil the promise. Well, Sophia is about to turn 30 and her two-year contract at MoMA is about to expire along with her visa or could be fixed if she married a wealthy American. So Robert, do they have similar interests? I think they do have very similar interests, um, but Sophia's more focused on visual art while Robert's more focused on literature. And I think they also, they're both interested in modernity, but have perhaps different conceptions of modernity. Like Sophia's very interested in kind of stripped down 20th century modernity while Robert's just done his PhD on 19th century nature writing. And he's very interested in kind of a more romantic 19th century conception 
of modernity and they they argue about that and I think they like that there's a bit of a bit of difference there. <laughs> Sophia described herself as a woman who loved torrid acid colours invented in laboratories and slathered on primed canvases, who loved industrial surfaces smooth and processed, textures that couldn't be found in nature. And Robert was in, into wilderness. But looking at modernity, I, th- I, I thought you had this, the whole thing about cities and forests summed up really nicely. You know, how they're both overwhelming, but you can step out into it, get to know it, and then claim it. And that's really what um, Sophia's trying to do in New York. But now where's Robert going with this wilderness? He's sort of always planned at the end of his PhD to go and hike the Appalachian Trail in between kind of handing in his thesis and applying for all the kind of tenure track jobs where the applications are due in January, but the positions start much later. And so he's kind of using that intervening period to go and hike the Appalachian Trail. Which takes five months. Yes. And the eve of departure, what does he do? He sort of accidentally proposes to Sophia when they're a bit drunk. (laughs) Robert has been keen for her to tell about the sexual fantasies she has. What doesn't he know? I don't think there's necessarily anything he doesn't know, but I think perhaps his conception of queerness is a bit different from Sophia's conception of queerness. I think he has a more kind of one-dimensional view of it as just desiring women um, rather than kind of thinking about that as sort of a broader question of identity and perhaps understanding the way in which that structures Sophia's worldview. There's sort of uh, a point of issue about whether Sophia is masquerading as a straight girl. Her future mother-in-law, this is Robert's mum, wants to look at wedding dresses with her and it's here we have another connection with Grace Hartigan. What's that? Grace Hartigan's best known painting is a painting called Grand Street Brides, uh, which sort of shows the scene that looks like a bunch of mannequins in a bridal shop window, but there's something a bit sort of haunted and ghostly about it. It has a lot of kind of ambiguity as a painting, I think, and can be interpreted in a lot of different ways, which makes it a very compelling painting. And so Sophia is very drawn to sort of the one bridal shop in New York that's not making any money as a bridal shop, but has a window that reminds her of the Grace Hartigan painting. It's not the dresses, but the sales assistant, Cara. Why is Sophia so entranced with her? I think um, Cara to Sophia represents sort of youth and also in that represent because she's 22 whereas Sophia's about to turn 30 and kind of represents like a different um, more openly queer path her life could have taken I think Cara to her because she's still young has all these options open to her whereas Sophia in turning 30 feels like her options are kind of closing closing down and so her interest in Cara perhaps is a means of like traveling back in time. There's an age difference between Sophia and Cara and it shows in the use of technology like Instagram. How do they use it differently? Sophia is a bit more particular and obsessive about it like she really is she overthinks everything but she definitely overthinks her use of Instagram whereas Cara's 
use is perhaps a bit more casual, but also because she is an artist along with being a bridal store assistant. Um, and also because she's quite sort of conventionally beautiful all her images come across as, at least to Sophia, um, as quite kind of visually compelling, even as they're quite casual and unstudied. And I think part of that is Sophia's kind of developing crush on Cara. Like another viewer might look at Cara's Instagram and see it as extremely self-indulgent. Um, but Sophia kind of looks at it and sees it as this sort of artistic commentary on the nature of the self. Could just be projection. Or self-obsessed navel-gazing. You'll have to read it to find (laughs) out. Sophia's got big decisions, but I love the lightheartedness of her Googling such things as how to stop thinking of somebody and how to text in a long-distance relationship. This indecision has her questioning whether to take part in the Gay Pride Parade. Why doesn't she? I think at that point she's perhaps being like a bit self-flagellating and she feels like because she doesn't actually kind of engage in community or like live a queer life she feels like she doesn't kind of deserve to be part of the queer community which is kind of like a vicious cycle really I I think I mean she has many flaws but one of them is that she's sort of incurably passive in terms of the action she takes like she thinks about everything so much and obsesses over every single decision to the point where she doesn't make these decisions. (laughs) No, she does not. What are the different views Sophia and Cara have about weddings? You know, Cara works at a wedding shop or selling dresses. What does she think about weddings? Cara's approach to weddings is more relaxed than Sophia's. I think they both kind of see weddings primarily as kind of aesthetic, um, aesthetic spectacles, and they're both drawn to the aesthetic of it. But Cara, I think, is a bit more casual about it. She doesn't really think about weddings politically, whereas Sophia is very concerned with kind of the politics of marriage and particularly the idea of being a bisexual woman who is marrying a man when she comes from a place, Australia, where at that point she wouldn't have been able to marry a woman. So Cara is more relaxed. Cara just kind of sees it as, yeah, weddings seem seems like fun. Um, whereas Sophia is a bit more stuck on the idea that maybe something she finds aesthetically compelling might be politically questionable. There are many artworks written about and even explained through this novel. We started with a reference to NGV and a few years ago they had an exhibition of Escher's work, of very intricate pencil drawings. Which one do you use to describe Sophia's dilemma? I can't remember the specific title of of the drawing, but it's sort of this analogy of desires um, matching up or not matching up as being like Escher's staircases, which is a reference to Anne Carson's Eros the Bittersweet. But Sophia doesn't realise it's a reference to Anne Carson and finds it a compelling reference, which makes her like Cara more, basically. Well, there's a lot in this book. A lot about art and finding out about it and artists and things about mothers and things about the Appalachian Trail that you'll never thought about. By the end of the book, Sophia knows that she can be active in her own future, doing what and with whom. You've got to read the book to find out. 
Anna Kate Blair writes insightfully and amusingly while exploring the issues of social conformity, desire, sexuality and a career in art through her debut novel, The Modern. Really well done. You're, you're a good writer. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jan. And now for my guest, and we'll just line the microphone up a little there. We're going from art to chaos here. The aftermath of World War I saw men damaged both physically and psychologically. Many were left disillusioned. Some even sought to create a new utopia. Scott Bennett, in his debut novel, so we've got two debut novelists today, Night in Passchendaele, explores one such group that wanted to create a new life for themselves. So, Scott, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. Now... To describe Passchendaele in a few sentences is difficult, but in some ways you've already done it. It's a word of biblical proportions like Gethsemane, Gomorrah, Golgotha and Sodom. Briefly, what happened at Passchendaele? Well, from the history books, uh, Passchendaele, there was the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917. And it was a grinding battle where the British were trying to push back the Germans. And over the space of three months, and it's actually the anniversary of Passchendaele at the moment, uh, around 350,000 uh, Allied troops were killed or wounded. Similar, similar number of Germans. But why, why we remember Passchendaele is what's synonymous with it is mud. Uh, and, uh, you know, a stark battlefield. So that's the imagery that, you know, remains in many people's mind. But it's also the destruction of society in many ways. There were people sent senselessly in as cannon fodder. Well, very, very good, and that's probably the right word, um, cannon fodder. And it's interesting, if you look at England, outside of Australia, they had what they called PAL battalions, where basically a local community uh, would all sign up, they'd be with their friends, and in essence, they'd march into battle, and often within an hour or two hours of a thousand person uh, battalion, you know, seven or eight hundred could be wiped out. So in natural uh you know, in essence, uh, it has really scarred for many generations on both Australia and England. But people then started to question society, the values, the institutions, everything. Correct, correct. And it was interesting, um, things like spiritualism really blossomed after the war because people were saying, well, what's happened to those millions and millions of dead? Are they, are they just two buckets of sweat and a bucket of water? Or does life go on? Others were questioning... Uh, you know, particularly uh, the working class soldiers, well, who did we die for? Who, who did our comrades die for? And that's where there was a lot of turbulence uh, in society, both Australia and England. Political turbulence as well, because communism was the spectre in the background as well. Yes, uh, you don't read about it much in the, in the newspapers, but even Australia, there was what they called the Red Riots uh, in Brisbane, where uh, people with communist leanings are uh, fighting battles uh, in the streets. If you look at uh, Russia, the 1917 uh, revolution, uh, and there was many countries that are on the precipice of revolution, You know, both France, Germany, monarchies, monarchies had fallen. So it was a very turbulent period immediately after the war. Now... Your novel uh, goes into a grave recovery unit uh, after the war, looking for the bodies of lost uh, men, but you've almost set up a heart of darkness uh, encounter here between uh, Lieutenant Wilfred Rhodes, uh, who's sent in to actually relieve Captain Charles Kingsley of his uh 
charge over the Graves Recovery Unit. Yes, there's there's definitely a nod to Hearts of Darkness, Joseph Conrad, so uh, without a doubt. But in essence, what I wanted to do, and, and I've done non-fiction on the Graves Recovery Unit, what we forget is of the 60,000 Australians that died on the battlefields, uh, 20,000, their bodies were never recovered or their um, remains never identified. So after the war... Uh, there was uh, many troops that remained to actually do that work. And you can imagine what it's like uh, if you have been through the war and all of a sudden you're having to recover bodies, uh, mangled bodies, uh, rebury them. So if, if I just go back one step, uh, in previous uh, book, nonfiction, I actually came across an 800-page uh, inquiry. And this is around the Australian gra- grave services that virtually uh, went rogue, um, and when I say rogue, uh, many of them not, weren't burying bodies. They were running brothels, going to brothels on the grog, stealing assets uh, from the government. And I found one quote in that uh, inquiry, about you know, 500 pages in, where, where a soldier said, I didn't realise, as he's getting questioned by his superiors in this inquiry, uh, I didn't realise that immorality was actually a military crime. And for me, that, was, that prompted me, well, gee... You know what's what's happening here? There's this this gentle pushback as someone who has got a military medal at Gallipoli. He's gone through four years of war, and now the army's still trying to dictate to him. And that was I thought I really wanted to build that out. What could have happened? Not because I could see within the pages the things that were going, but I wanted to take it to that next level. That's why I used fiction. But also then you've got people that are completely disillusioned, people who are disfigured. Uh, and broken in many ways, so you can understand why they are behaving. Because, as you say, immorality, well, what the government was doing, what the army was doing, was just as immoral, sending them into fight. Yeah, yeah, and and pretty soon after the war, um, life moved on. You know, two or three years later, people were interested who was going to make the test cricket team rather than repatriation or how... um, how veterans got on, but you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. It was not diagnosed back then. It was unknown. So there was shell-shocked men that just, and they'd say they'd, they'd just write in their diaries, "I feel queer," um, and they couldn't actually articulate or get treatment. You know, there was others that disfigured. You know, facial disfigurement. Now, um, you know, there was locations where they would actually um, receive rehabilitation, and there was signs on on the. Uh, on the seats for no one to sit there so they wouldn't see these disfigured men or people run away or kids run away. So, you know, there was a, there's a core, and you've got to remember, you know, for Australia, 60%, this, the soldiers that went overseas were either killed or wounded. So if you weren't killed, good chance you were wounded. And if you're wounded, there's a good chance you lost a limb or, or you're disfigured. But here we go. We've got Captain Charles Kingsley who recognises this uh, but he's running this rogue unit, but he's making allowances for these people that are damaged, and in some ways he's doing good. Yes, yes. So Kingsley is basically aiming to set up a utopia. So what he wants to do with his war-injured soldiers, many of them are in his battalion, is set up a utopian society, somewhere away from Australia, somewhere where they can have an agrarian life a simple life and you know utopia gets bandied around a fair bit but at you know if you look 10 15 years earlier there was many australians that left for paraguay to set up a utopian society they called it new australia so that's where people's minds were at particularly after the war where many of those traditional um 
elements such as the church, religion, the empire, people had lost faith in that. So Kingsley is basically setting up a utopian society with his damaged men. But he's aware of the psychological impact it's had. So he's making allowances for their immorality as well. Well, and this is where truth emerges with uh, with, with fiction. So, uh, you know, if you look at the non-fiction, as I said, there were soldiers that were actually setting up brothels, running brothels. Um, there were soldiers that wouldn't actually work in the fields. And, and Kingsley is basically saying, hey, the, every man is wounded. You may or may not see a wound, but every man is wounded in some shape or form. So he was providing allowances uh, for them, but which doesn't really sit well with the army, who's uh, very rigid and thou shalt do it this way. Well, Lieutenant Wilfred Rhodes is sent in to basically um, relieve uh, Kingsley of the commission. But here's an interesting character because he's a broken man as well and he lacks in many ways the moral fibre because he feels guilty about Passchendaele. Yes, uh, if you look at Kingsley and Rhodes, they started their careers in the army very similar but then it met a fork in the road. Uh, Rhodes lost his men at Passchendaele. He lost his platoon, his comrades and he was badly injured, uh, very badly wounded, uh, barely survived. And coming out of that, you know, in many ways, he was a broken man. He was a lost man. Uh, so he had a choice. His commander said, you can either get a boat home or you can basically go in and end Kingsley's uh, command. And that's where he goes in and he becomes pulling. He's at a, pulling, uh, pulled. He's at his crossroads. It's, I can see the countryside healing me, but I... I know I have to carry out this mission. And, I mean, David, in many ways, you know, you, you say, you know, he's conflicted, but in many ways he's like many of us. You know, we're, we're not certain, we're not black and white, uh, we, we, we dither, and, you know, in many ways we're on his shoulder seeing his thought process. But he's seduced by uh, Kingsley's vision on the one hand, at the same time, He's so damaged, he's suffering from hallucinations, you know, when he falls into uh, a pit and the decomposing body and he's, he's sort of imagining it's rats or it's him or, or everything like that. So he can't even function as well. That's another one of the problems. Yeah, yeah. And again, uh, we look back now and say that he, he you know, suffers from um, severe post-traumatic stress disorder and hallucination, nightmares. Uh, so he's suffering all that while trying to carry out a mission, which he soon realises that he's ill-equipped to actually carry out. Now, here's the other go, because now we get the new Eureka being established, which is meant to be for the community, a collective. But in order for a collective to operate, what's, what's the irony here with Kingsley and him taking... His leadership. Well, and again, in some ways, there's a little bit of corporate in this as well. You know, we all talk about the promised land. You know, we all want to get to the promised land. It's a grand idea that we all want. But when you actually sit down and practically map it out and try and make it happen, um, there's a lot of unanswered questions as to how you do it. And that's, in essence, what starts to happen with Kingsley. He's got the grand vision, but how does he actually bring it into fruition? Well, so that You've got the line about revolution and what is justifiable under a revolution and that is yeah yeah well that's uh in essence um kingsley gets to the point where he can justify uh people being killed 
uh, because that's the price of the revolution. And if you look at many revolutions around the world, you know, it starts with, well, we can justify the, the death of 10. We can justify the death of hundreds. We can justify the deaths of thousands. I mean, we just had the anniversary of Chile, you know, same thing, you know, and, and, and a saying and that, you know, you often hear and that it's true back from Vietnam is, you know, we had to destroy the village to save it. And, and in many ways, this is Kingsley in some ways destroying some of the men that he's actually trying to save. But this doesn't seem to be any different from the armies that sent them into battle in the first place. I mean, Passchendaele was ridiculous. Well, it, it was. Uh, in many ways, Lloyd George, who was the Prime Minister of England, didn't want it to happen, uh, wasn't able to pull back Haig, who was uh, very gung-ho about it. But um, in, in essence, that dithering or, or lack of um, decision, you know, ended up in, in so many deaths, you know, of 19, 20, 21-year-olds. You know, you walk the battlefields, you walk the, the cemeteries, and, and they're all 19, 20, 20-year-old 20 uh, young men, you know, that have travelled... 10,000 miles to, to get there from far lands. And the novel is actually full of interesting historical detail because you've got a background as an historian. This is your first novel. Uh, but Haig's motorbile, uh, automobile? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the, I won't call it a character, but uh, in, in the uh, novel is the Silver Ghost, which is a Rolls Royce, which is in essence the vehicle that uh, Haig used to travel around. And that, to a degree, symbolises... Um, you know, in many ways, the pomp and ceremony and, you know, how important symbols are and people following symbols. So, you know, that does feature quite heavily in the book. Now, we get to the point where um, Rhodes is thinking about dismissing Kingsley in more ways than one, but now you provide an element of intrigue here because basically, and we're not going to give it away, but uh, Colonel George Bull Pearson is the one who has sent uh, Rhodes into this situation. But it's actually um, Jenkins that knows, um, uh, Kingsley, that knows what happened at Passchendaele. Yes, yeah. Um, Bull Pearson, who is his commander... He, he, he understands what has happened at Passchendaele. As, as I said, uh, Wilfred Rhodes, he's lost his memory. So in many ways, uh, Rhodes becomes a pawn of Pearson. And, you know, as we get through the book, there's a, there's a, a realisation that Pearson isn't acting in his best interest. And again, he's battling Pearson on one front and you know, Kingsley on another front. And the fact is, Kingsley knows something about him. Yeah, yeah. everyone knows a lot except <laughs> Rhodes. The, well, all of this intrigue is playing on yeah, in the background, yeah. and there's more than we can uh, possibly cover in the time we've got. But the book is uh, Night in Passchendaele. The author is Scott Bennett, who is uh, an historian, but moving into novels by the looks of things. It's an intriguing novel about the aftermath of World War One, rather than World War One itself and the damage that was caused. It is a Pan Macmillan release. So, Scott, thank you very much for coming in and talking with me. Thank today. you very much, David. And I was speaking with Anna Kate Blair about her book, The Modern, which also deals with decisions. And uh, I don't know whether MoMA and the Art Gallery is just as conflicting as the war area, but, well, good reads. OK, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.